The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, we'll go ahead and uh, open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We get to uh, a, a passage or section that up until 50 years ago would have been fairly straightforward to go through. There wouldn't have been much controversy or disagreement, but we live in different times. And so this section is now um, more controversial, more um, difficult. Um, We'll talk about some of those things as we press on. But tonight, all we're going to do is gonna, we're going to go through the first three verses, and then, um, then we'll make our way through. So let's go ahead and read those. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware, ignorant. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says... Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So, Paul is uh, starting a new section, and if you notice, your, uh, your Bibles will say those first two words, typically, now concerning, and you might remember that when we got to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Verse 1, Paul uses this phrase, now concerning the things which you wrote. Okay? So the assumption is that the Corinthians wrote Paul a letter and, and, and perhaps inquired about a number of issues. So from that point on, every time Paul introduces a new section with now concerning in all likelihood, it goes back to the idea of now concerning the things that you wrote. So these are issues that the Corinthians would have brought up, um, marriage, um, those um, that uh, now concerning virgins, uh, now concerning um, meat offered to idols, now concerning the spirituals, all right? So this starts a new unit, and the unit goes from 12 to 14, okay? So it's a big section. And once again, if it weren't for the, the Corinthian chaos, uh, we, would, we would not have this incredibly rich passage that deals so extensively with spiritual gifts. And so Paul goes... 12, 13, and 14, dealing with spiritual gifts. And let me just sort of sketch what he does in 12, 1 through 31a, first part of the verse. He deals with basically the diversity of gifts in the body, but the unity of the body. Now, we're going to see that there is... uh, there are specific reasons why Paul has to be reinforcing the unity of the body. He uh, readily acknowledges that we all have different gifts, um, different areas of service. God works in us in different ways. And so there's this 
marvelous diversity, but it's the same Lord. It's the same Spirit. It's the same God who is at work in us, distributing the diversity of gifts as he sees fit, but yet it is within the one body. And so you have diversity and unity. And of course, against the backdrop of the Corinthian assembly, the Corinthians, of course, suffered from, um, from a super spiritualized Christianity. They suffered from division that was driven by pride. And so spiritual gifts was one of those areas where they really prided themselves, elevating themselves above other believers. And so Paul is going to emphasize the fact that, that the gifts are given, the diversity of gifts are given for the common good. And the body has a fundamental unity to it so that the diversity, in a sense, only reinforces the unity. You have different body parts, different body functions, and we're all interdependent on each other. If the whole body were an eye, right, how could it hear? If the whole body were an ear, how could it see? And so forth. And so you have unity and diversity. Then Paul moves into 1 Corinthians 13. And 1 Corinthians 13, unfortunately, is, is often extracted from its context as if it were designed by Paul for special uses at weddings, okay? or wall plaques. or so. And the fact is, is that chapter 13, okay, so here's, here's the profound exegetical insight of the evening. 1 Corinthians 13 comes right between 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Okay? You're supposed to say, wow. Okay? Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because 12 to 14 is, is a cohesive unit. It's a, it's a cohesive um, unit of thought, of, of sustained argument. And so the point of 1 Corinthians 13 is the priority of love in the exercise of the gifts. Paul's uh, purpose in 1 Corinthians 13 is not to give us a treatise on the nature of charity. It's to demonstrate that that the true operation of the Spirit and his gifts within the body should be motivated by love. And this is what love looks like. Right, So uh, Tom Schreiner says, gifts without love are useless and even harmful. Okay. And so you can imagine what Paul's doing is he's, he's trying to get these Corinthians to realize that whatever the gift is that God has given to them, he has not given it to them for them to seek their own. Why? Because love does not seek its own. He didn't give these gifts to them for them to be able to boast about them and brag. I'm a prophet. I speak in tongues. I I do this. I do that. Because love does not brag. And so Paul, in a real sense, gives the modus operandi of the spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 13 
which should be love. Then in 1 Corinthians 14, the chapter is uh, devoted to uh, the purpose and the regulation of the gifts. Paul is going to, in a sense, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's going to deal primarily with uh, prophecy and tongues. And in dealing with prophecy and tongues, he is going to explain the purpose that those gifts are given, and then he's going to regulate how those gifts should be used. Okay? Now, I thought about how to uh, approach this because, you know, us working our way through three chapters is going to take a little while, and there are so many contemporary issues that come to mind when we approach this section. Um, the charismatic movement, Pentecostalism, third wave, new apostolic reformation, all of these, all of these movements making, making incredible claims that, that what they're doing is what's in here. Okay? And I think that and we'll address those things but I think my tendency is going to be to work through the text first and then deal with contemporary application. Okay. And, of course, contemporary application includes everything from um, are all the gifts continuing today or have some of them ceased? It's a huge issue. Huge issue of debate. Maybe it's never dawned on you that perhaps some of these gifts have ceased. Um, in addition to that, how do these gifts, how should they function within a local church body? What does it look like for somebody to uh, have word of wisdom? Okay. What does that look like? Okay. Word of knowledge. Does it, does it mean that, you know, while I'm preaching, the light bulb goes on and I say there's somebody in about the eighth row named Margot who's, you know, you know got a really handsome husband and um, God just gave me that word of knowledge, you know. Um, I was trying to, I, I realized I was getting myself into trouble immediately, so um, I tried to salvage that, um, what do these gifts look like as they're practiced within the body? Okay. So these are huge issues today, right? And um, thankfully, thankfully, um, in our near 25 years, they've not been um, uh, points of controversy or contention for us. But here we are, ready to dive in. So we're going to do one through three tonight. It's sort of the introduction to the section, and so Paul says, now concerning, and notice if you, if you have um, at least New American Standard, I don't know what the ESV does, notice gifts is in italics, okay? Is it in italics in the ESV? Yes? Okay. So if it's in italics, what that means is that that's not, a, it, that's a word that's not in the text, all right? The text just says, now concerning the spirituals. Okay. 
which is not overly helpful. Now, when he says the spirituals, forget spirituals for a second, but the may be reference to specifically what the Corinthians were inquiring about. Now concerning the spirituals, which you asked about. Okay? But you have a peculiar expression here in one sense. I say peculiar, it's used in different places. The reason why it's a challenge is because in, uh, in, in Greek, you've got three genders, okay? It's not like in California where you've got 27. Okay? You have masculine, feminine, and neuter, all right? The, the forms of the masculine and the neuter are the same. So Paul could be saying now concerning spiritual people. That would be if it was masculine. Um, If it's neuter, it would be now concerning spiritual things. Now, the problem is, is that Paul uses the phrase in 1 Corinthians both ways. So, for instance, he uses it in the neuter in 9-11 and 14-1 very clearly, and it means just the spirituals or the spiritual things. But he also uses it clearly in the masculine in 2-15, and 14-37, meaning spiritual person. Okay? So, the question is, is in what, what is Paul then talking about? We sort of assume, and there's a reason why we assume, that he's talking about spiritual gifts. Okay? But I, I, and, and let me just tell you why people go with spiritual gifts pretty quickly. If you look at 1231, okay, Paul says in 1231, the first, that first line, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Okay? So gifts there is the term charismata. Okay? We get the word charismatic from from this word. The idea is grace gifts. We'll talk more about that. So earnestly desire the charismata, the grace gifts. But then if you look over at chapter 14, um, he says in the first line, pursue love yet earnestly desire spirituals, okay? especially that you may prophesy. So a lot of people take 12 31 together with 14.1 and go, look, okay, he's talking about gifts in, in, in 12.31. He says spirituals in 14.1. Then he talks about prophecy, which is a gift. So when he says now concerning spirituals, he must be talking about concerning spiritual gifts. Okay? And so obviously, very, very possible. Um, Gordon Fee actually makes a suggestion, and that is that Paul has a subtle distinction between charismata, that is gifts, and pneumaticon, that is spiritual. Okay? So he says when Paul's emphasizing gifts, he'll use charismata. When he's emphasizing the work of the Spirit, he'll use pneumaticon, and he argues that it's best to actually take 12.1 like this. Um, now concerning the things of the Spirit which include gifts, manifestations, ministries, people, 
All of it. Okay? In other words, it's a big discussion. And that's how Paul introduces it. I actually think that that's probably, probably the case. Notice also now concerning spirituals, brethren. So he addresses them as brothers. And um, it's, it's, always, um, it's always interesting to me to watch, as you read Paul, the Galatians, of course, is an exception. But um, there's even moments of compassion and sensitivity in Galatians, but just not a lot. But for Paul, he oftentimes will will soften the blow with words of endearment. He's about to say some things that are um, pretty stiff indictments against the Corinthians. And yet he interjects at the beginning of this section brothers. It's a term of congeniality, it is a term of endearment, and it is, um, it, it helps get their attention, but it is in a sense Paul uh, reaffirming in, in spite of the fact that he's about to say, you're ignorant, you're still brothers. Okay. So the next time that you're about ready to really rebuke somebody. The next time you're really about to bring that word of correction, think about how to soften the blow a little bit. It's a Pauline Pauline method. You know, there's no virtue in just obliterating somebody. You put a little velvet around the hammer brothers, right? And then you smack them. All right. He says then next, he says, I, uh, New American Standard, I like the, the way that they um, unnecessarily soften this. Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Okay? That's what he says. Uh, New American Standard says, unaware. All right. So, <clears throat> You might be unaware. In fact, I just heard something that was like a big news item. And uh, somebody, you didn't know that? And I was like, no, now I can't even remember what it was. And um, I was completely unaware. And so, yeah, it was ignorance, but, it, but, but non-culpable ignorance is unaware. Okay? Ignorance is culpable. Okay? All right? So he says, I do not want you to be ignorant. Now, you have to understand that, that for the Corinthians, because they are, they are so proud and they think that they have so much knowledge. I mean, this is the church that prides itself on, on knowledge. And so for Paul to turn around and say, I don't want you to be ignorant, implication is you kind of are. This is, in a sense, sort of a sting to, to their pride. And, um, and so he says, I do not want you to be ignorant brethren. And um, what he's going to lay out for them. This passage is sort of challenging. But I think that what he's going to do is he's going to lay out for them 
what makes a legitimate Christian or spiritual experience? That's what I think he's going to do. Do you think the Corinthians were into experience? We've been studying this book for a while. The answer is going to be an emphatic yes. They were totally into experience. And they would have looked at their experience, their, their, quote, spiritual experience, as really sort of badges of maturity and badges of wisdom and badges of super-spirituality. Have you ever met anybody like this? Okay. Where their experience, you know, they had some experience, and it, that's what defined them and their Christianity, right? So I had this happen to me. And, and in fact, sometimes, sometimes people will look back on certain experiences and put all of their hope in a past experience instead of the present reality of the existence or non-existence of their Christianity. There's a guy I used to used to be around here no longer for a very long time. His life was an absolute disaster, his train wreck, and every time I would talk to him about obedience, repentance, he would go back 15 years to an experience that he had when he was doing a, a, a mission trip to Mexico. So regardless of what was happening now, the fact is, is that I had this awesome experience back then, and so his whole Christianity was, was built around the ideal is if I could just get back to that experience. Spiritual experience is a real thing. You should want your Christianity to be experiential. That is, lived out in real life. Okay? In other words, it's not just theoretical. It's not just abstract. It's not just in terms of notions that float through your head. So you're not a Christian just because you believe Jesus is the Son of God. You're a Christian because you know Jesus. That's experiential. Spiritual experience is a real thing. But the Corinthians looked at spiritual experience... And it was as if spiritual experience was legitimate and genuine simply because it was a spiritual experience. And it's not true. It's not true. There are lots of people who have spiritual experiences that have nothing of Christ in them. And nothing of salvation in it. Lots of people, 
So let's just get this out of the way. Lots of people who fall down on the floor. Lots of people who speak in tongues. Lots of people who, who had somebody prophesy over them and they don't know God from a rock. Experience for experience sake is worthless. I think that that's going to be Paul's point. So notice he says, you know that when you were pagans, now the actual word here is Gentiles. You know that when you were Gentiles, I think the King James and the New King James, the only translations that actually retain Gentile. Um, There's a reason why translators go with pagan. But So he says, I don't want you to... There's actually sort of a funny play on words and sort of a a poke in their eye of pride because he says on the one hand, he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. Now, you know when you were Gentiles. So what did they pride themselves on? Chapter 8, verse 1, we know, right, all, all, all the stuff that we know, Paul says, I want you to be ignorant. Now, here's what you do know. When you were Gentiles, okay, that is, when you were, why does he say Gentiles? Um, because that kind of makes it sound, when you were Gentiles, makes it sound like they are no longer Gentiles. Okay. Well, in a sense, that's true. Because from a Jewish perspective, of course, Gentiles did not know God. And Gentiles did not worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so as believers, they've been grafted in, Romans 11. As believers in Jesus, they're now a part of sort of a third category. So remember 1 Corinthians 10.32, do not give offense to Jew, Gentile, or the church of God. Now they're a part of the church of God. They used to be Gentiles. Now they're a part of the church of God. Okay, So, of course, when Paul's talking like this, when you were Gentiles, he is talking about back in your pagan days. Some of you had the the benefit and blessing of being raised in a Christian home, but uh, any of you here have pagan days? I love the honest people in our church. <laughs> so Paul says, when you were Gentile pagan, when you were heathen, boy, there's a politically incorrect word, right? You don't use the word heathen anymore, except when you're talking about your children. He says, you know... Right? See, this, this is what you do know. That when you were Gentiles, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. So, Paul says, so in, in, your, in your pre-Christian life, you were, uh, in your pagan life, you were led astray. That is, you, you were spiritually deceived. You didn't know the truth. You didn't know the God of truth. You were led astray. And he says, you were led astray to dumb idols. And by dumb idols, he doesn't mean like stupid idols, although that's true. He means mute idols. 
one of the um, one of the great things about the Old Testament is that there are these magnificent critiques of idols, right? Magnificent critiques of uh, really, I mean, they're not just critiques; they are uh, mockery. Okay, totally making fun of idols and. Um, so let me just read some of these to you. Uh, so Jeremiah 10.5 is a great one. Like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they, that is idols, and they cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Do not fear them for they can do no harm, nor can they do any good. Okay. So an idol... So. And by the way, Paul has already made this point back in chapter 8. An idol in and of itself is nothing. If an idol can't speak, it's because it doesn't have the capacity to communicate. An idol can't do anything. In fact, the... um, uh, Isaiah is the best because he has all of these uh, wonderful mockeries. You know, you go out, you chop down a tree, you got a piece of wood, you cut it in two. With one, you chop it up and cook your food, you make a fire to cook your food, and with the other, you make an idol. And so you fashion it, and then you, you take it, you carve it up, and then you take it to the silversmith, and he puts silver on it, and, and, but you got to make sure you get the chains. Make sure you get the proper idol accessories because if you do not have the proper idol accessories, your idol might fall down. So it's got to be held up by chain so it doesn't fall over because, of course, when your idol falls over, that's kind of a bad thing, right? Remember Dagon. And you have to carry it. You have to transport it. What kind of God is that? This is, this is the mockery of the Old Testament, but one of the primary things is that, is that the idol is mute. So Habakkuk 2, what prophet is the idol when its maker has carved it? Or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his, his own handiwork when he fashions speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, awake, and to a mute stone, arise. And that's your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, but there's no breath at all inside of it. Perhaps the best, and this is not necessarily a mockery, but this is, this is the indictment of idolatry, Psalm 115, but our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. So you have the true God who's in heaven, and he does whatever he pleases. Idols are made out of created stuff, then are fashioned by the hands of man. Then the psalmist says, they have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. 
They cannot make a sound with their throat. And then here's the indictment. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says that there is this, there is this secret law of the soul so that we become like that which we worship. Comes right from the Psalms. So Paul is reminding them of their their not-so-good old days, right? And then he says this, he says, So you were led astray to mute idols. So here they are. They're being led astray, and then he says, however, however you were led, okay? In other words, whatever that looked like for your particular uh, brand of idolatry, that's what you did. Now, a lot of the commentators point out the fact that, that Paul may be very strongly alluding to the fact that many of these Corinthians, if not most of them who came from a pagan background, would have had ecstatic experiences, speaking in tongues. By the way, speaking in tongues is not unique to Christianity. We'll talk more about that later. But there are pagan religions that practice glossolia. Ecstatic experience, speaking in tongues, prophesying. Many of the mystery religions in the Greco-Roman world um, typically had a significant prophet that was the mouthpiece for the deity. And so here you have um, paganism, which was, which was incredibly experiential. It's based on experience. Here you had uh, paganism that that uh, was filled with ecstatic speech and ecstatic utterance and 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 an experience that was um, otherworldly. Paul says, "You remember those days." However you were led. Led by who? Certainly not God. Maybe the unidentified agent in the leading here is actually just Satan himself. Unbelievers are under the control of their idol. Some of you know that by experience. Whatever the heart sets upon to worship is the idol, and what you worship is what controls you. It's what you live for. It's what shapes your life. 
Well, beside that, behind every idol, 1 Corinthians 10, 19 to 21, is demonic reality. And so the, the unbeliever who was, who was being led to mute idols is not just being, not just being um, let's say, uh, innocently led or um, innocuously led with no implication of life. They're actually being led by the powers of darkness and being deceived by the powers of darkness. So, in the Philippines, for instance, every year in, during Passion Week, you will have devoted worshipers of Roman Catholicism who will be willfully nailed to a cross in other parts of the world. And it's all to show their devotion, which, by the way, has more in common with Baal worship than Christianity. You have places all over the world where where Mary, as the mother of God, is worshipped. I mean, think about this. How do these places, for instance, like Lourdes or Fatima, how do these places uh, become centers of Mary worship well, typically some, some, some sort of miracle happens. And then pilgrims from all over the world will make a pilgrimage to that place in order to worship the Blessed Virgin. Okay. Or... The uh, well-meaning young man on a bicycle who's an elder at 20 years old thinks that what he's doing is he's on the road to godhood. Do you think the devil has anything to do with any of this? Or do you think that this is just unfortunate, misguided devotion and worship? For Paul, the whole idea of your, your, your pagan past, your pagan world, all of that, you were being led. You were being led astray. You're worshiping mute idols, and of course, behind those idols, in a real sense, is is demonic power. And so Paul is, is reminding them of their past, probably, probably, 
that has to do with the fact that here they were now as Christians elevating spiritual experience to to such a high degree and what Paul is trying to do is Paul is is trying to show them that that the very things that you're elevating now um, on an experiential basis were, were similar to the very same things that you did when you were pagans. Gordon Fee makes the comment, he says, rather, what they need to understand is that what counts is the intelligible Christian content of their utterances. I'll probably make reference and allusion to to some of my uh, teenage years throughout 12, 13, and 14 because I was enamored with movements that were supposedly of the Spirit. Before I was even a Christian, went to the cathedral in downtown Sacramento as a Roman Catholic. There was a priest by the name of Father Luke Zimmer. He had in his possession, supposedly, an actual piece of the cross. Now, of course, in hundreds of years of Catholic history, if you took all of the pieces of wood that were claimed to be a piece of the cross, the cross would have been as big as the state of Texas. But being in possession of that relic gave Father Luke Zimmer special powers. And so when he would come to the cathedral once a year, guess where we made sure we went every year? We went downtown to the cathedral, and do you know what his special power was? People would come, and they would kneel around the altar. So you're in a kneeling position, and he would walk by, and he would touch your head, and you would fall over. I did it, and I thought, and by the way, he didn't go like, right, so that's what people think sometimes it's slain in the spirit is somebody goes and smacks you in the head and knocks you unconscious and you fall over because you have no choice. It's not like that. The experience What did it do for me? The answer is, in the least, nothing. Worst case, deceives me. Fast forward five years. I'm a Christian, and I go to meetings, 
where the guy knocks you over. And it happened to me. What did it do for me? Nothing. Nothing. I didn't get up a more holy person. I didn't get up closer to God. I got up with a buzz. And that's what it was all about. That was the goal of it. That was, that's, that's what drove the seeking of experience was, was the feelings that you'd get because it was really easy to associate the feelings with, with a sense of God's power or to associate the feelings with a sense of God's presence with me. And so I think that what Paul's saying is something like this. The stuff that you're doing now, stop and think. This is the same stuff you were doing back in your pagan days. Now you've just baptized it. Notice what he says. Therefore, verse 3, I make known to you. Now, let me just let me just say that that they already knew what he was about to say. But had apparently forgotten it. Okay. A couple commentators that have a terrific commentary on 1 Corinthians say Paul is regretfully compelled to make it known to them as if for the first time. You understand the the implication that Paul's making about the Corinthians at this point. I do not want you to be ignorant, and now let me make something really clear to you. Is it possible for Christians to decrease in spiritual IQ because of moral issues? Absolutely. Writer to the Hebrews. Love to tell you about Melchizedek. It's absolutely fascinating, but you're so stupid right now. You just need the ABCs. That's paraphrase. So here's what I have to say. It's like Paul. So this is what I got to tell you. So pay attention. This is what I got to tell you. Simple lesson. No one can say Jesus is accursed by the Holy Spirit. You really have to tell him that, Paul? Well, evidently, he really had to tell him that. Now, this is, this is an interesting thing because accursed, of course, is an Old Testament word, anathema. Okay? And under the old, in the Old Testament, it meant something that was under the ban, something that was devoted to destruction, 
So it, it, it ended up taking on the connotation of an accursed thing. Okay. So to say, by the way, Jesus is accursed is blasphemy. To say Jesus is anathema is blasphemy. But Paul, for some reason, thinks he has to tell the Corinthians, if you're blaspheming, it's not because you're speaking by the Holy Spirit. Now, that seems fairly obvious. So the question is, why does Paul have to make this known to them? In other words, was this something that was actually really going on in the Corinthian assembly? Were people standing up saying as if they were empowered by the Spirit, Jesus is accursed? And a lot of commentators don't think that this is what was actually happening in the Corinthian assembly for one particular reason. And that is, if the Corinthians were actually standing up in the assembly, blaspheming Jesus, claiming it was spirit-inspired utterance, most commentators point out that Paul's response would have been much more severe. Most suggest that what Paul is doing is he's contrasting the curse, Jesus is Lord, and the conf- or Jesus is a curse, and the confession, Jesus is Lord, because he wants the Corinthians to understand that Jesus' lordship is the criteria for all spiritual experience. So he uses two extremes in contrast. A spiritual experience is, is not in and of itself valid. If you stand up and say Jesus is a curse, you're not saying it by the Spirit. That's something like that. Others actually make other more creative suggestions. Um, saying that maybe they did this under in, during their uh, pagan past under demonic influence. Um, that's possible, but it doesn't seem, um, seem too realistic in the context. Um, my favorite, my favorite creative and yet completely implausible explanation is that instead of Jesus is accursed, it should be Jesus curses. So you had... The, the, the idea is that you have people up in the Corinthian assembly standing up claiming to be speaking by the Spirit and saying, Jesus curses you. Jesus curses you, right? Which, of course, might be true, but the grammar basically prohibits it. So I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with the hypothetical that this was not happening in the Corinthian assembly. Assuming that if it was, Paul would have been, Paul would have, come unglued, right? Then he turns around and he says, and no one is able to say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So you've got these these two contrasts. You've got your past led astray to mute idols, however you were led, and, and, and now you have to understand nobody can actually say by the Spirit Jesus is a curse, but also no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 
By the way, it's absolutely overly simplistic to think that Paul has in mind that just by saying these words, you're saying them by the Holy Spirit. Like you teach your three-year-old. Okay, say Jesus is Lord. And they go, Jesus is Lord. And you go, wow, look at that. He spoke by the Holy Spirit. Okay, It's not what Paul has in mind. He's talking about making genuine Christian confession. Why? Because the Christian confession is Jesus is Lord. Right? If you confess with your mouth, Romans 10.9, Jesus is Lord. Right? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is the Christian confession. This is the Christian confession that was that was in complete antithesis to the Roman confession, Caesar is Lord. Jesus is Lord. So what does that, what does that mean? What is, what is the heart of that confession? So when the Christians confess Jesus is Lord, and Paul writes, if you confess Jesus is Lord, you have to understand that against the background of the Old Testament, especially Greek translation of the Old Testament, where the term, where the, uh, tetragrammaton, the divine name, Yahweh, is translated kurios, 7,000 times in the Old Testament. So to confess Jesus as Lord is to confess Jesus as Yahweh. This, by the way, is why If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father. You can't deny Jesus and still have God. You're clear about that, right? Being a monotheist doesn't mean you have God. You have to be Trinitarian to have God. So to make this confession was a profound confession. But it was also a confession of Jesus' resurrection and exaltation, Acts 2.36. This this Jesus God has made both Lord and Christ. So there is this this, confession. Confession, so so he puts like this, he says, the Lord of all the universe is by his resurrection none other than Jesus, the crucified, risen one. So Paul's point is actually fairly simple when you boil it down. The test of whether the Spirit is speaking the test of spiritual experience is based on Christ. In other words, the test of spiritual experience is not the experience itself. The experience may be pure idolatry. The experience may be may be simple deception. To say Jesus is Lord 
is to say that the test of all spiritual experience, the test of all spiritual utterance, is the lordship of Jesus. Why? Because the spirit who gives gifts as he wills doesn't glorify himself, nor does he glorify gifts, nor does he glorify experience. He glorifies Christ. Calvin referred to the Holy Spirit as the shy member of the Trinity. Because the Spirit is not interested in magnifying himself. So Jesus says in the Upper Room Discourse, when he comes, he will glorify me. So all the gifts of the Spirit flow from the risen, exalted Christ. Therefore, since Christ's lordship is the main thing, content matters, not just experience. So, how do you know something is of God? Does it point me to Christ? Does it make much of Christ? Does it magnify Christ? Does it exalt Christ? By the way, you know what that does? That discounts about 95% of things that are claimed to be of the Holy Spirit. Because so much that's claimed to be of the Holy Spirit is simply the exaltation of the experience or the Spirit. The Spirit says, when I work... I work under the rubric of the lordship of Jesus. I exalt Jesus. And if Jesus is not being exalted and confessed as Lord, I'm not in it. So the exaltation of Jesus as Lord is the plumb line of determining the presence and power of the Spirit. If you want to ask yourself a good question, take spiritual experience X and say, Did it bring me closer to Christ? Does it exalt Christ? Do I love Christ more because of it? Or do I love the way it made me feel? We we need to actually think like this. Let me bring it, let me bring it more, you know, because I, I doubt there are many of you that are like experienced junkies. Do you love worship 
because you love to worship? Or do you love worship because it exalts Christ? Plenty of people can get into a moving worship song. Right? And I'm all in favor of having good music with good words that stir the soul. But you can do spiritual things and not have a spiritual and not have a Christ-centered focus. And Paul's basically saying, if it isn't under the rubric of the Lordship of Jesus, if it's not according to the Lordship of Jesus, there's not, it's not the Spirit. Because the Spirit's all about Jesus. How do you know the Holy Spirit is pleased? Well, the Holy Spirit's pleased not because you walk away going, wow, that was awesome. I felt the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is delighted when you walk away saying, wow, Christ is awesome. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's the work of the Spirit. God help us to be discerning and God help us to to help others be discerning because there is so much false spirituality out there and so much false spiritual experience out there. And so no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your revelation to us in your word, and we do thank you for the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord and the giver of life. And we pray, Father, that as he works in us through the gifts that he's given, through the, through the ministries that he's called us to, that Christ would be glorified in our lives, and in our church body. And so we commit ourselves to you. We commit our local church body to you, to that great end. In Christ's name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.